Excellence Expected, the inspirational business advice podcast. Hello and welcome to Excellence Expected with me, Mark Asquith. And thank you again, as ever, so much for joining me this week. All right, this week we are going to pick up on something that we've touched on, I guess, a little bit in the past, but we've never really delved into. And that is following a passion, following a dream, and actually following that passion and dream to create a global business against all of the odds. And this week, I'm very honoured to be joined by a guest from Young Voices, Mr. David Lewis. Welcome, sir. Hello, how are you, Mark? I'm very good, thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We were just talking in the pre-interview chatter about the... Uh, the dreariness of the day outside, and it's it's nice to come inside and have a good old chat with you, David. So yeah, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. So, David, the interview, Excellence Expected, is all about action, it's all about entrepreneurialism, it's all about business owners taking action and overcoming problems and issues that they face every day. And there's perhaps no bigger issue than when you're starting out in business and someone tells you, actually, do you know what? You can't do that. And if like yourself and like many other people out there, that just galvanizes you. You do actually need to take some steps to make that happen. And that's what we're going to talk about today, isn't it? Excellent. Okay, so before we dive in then, the listeners out there don't know Young Voices. They don't know David Lewis. So tell tell the guys out there listening, David, what is your personal background? Where did you come from? And what, what is your history, sir? Well, um, I'm 74 in a week's time. Um that many years ago, when I was young, I wasn't particularly interested in education or educating myself. I was a bit relaxed, to say the least. My ambitions were to play county cricket and become a professional cricketer, which I did a bit, but not particularly successfully. Um, because it was post-war, I think parents in those days were very anxious that their children should be qualified. Um, <laughs> My father made the big mistake of putting me into an accountant's office, which was like complete double dutch to me, and I left within a week. But when I went into a lawyer's office, I did find that quite interesting, I had to admit, and I stuck with it. But I played cricket every summer, so I only took exams in the winter, and I wasn't as dedicated as I should have been, and I have to say it was not a a lifetime passion for me to be a lawyer. That's interesting then. So quite a diverse background then. And it's, it's, again, it seems like early on you were following the passion, following the cricketing passion, following that dream with some success. And what actually led you to Young Voices? What is Young Voices? Where did it come from? And, you know, how did you get to where you are today with Young Voices? Yes, I mean, I think in some respects, the cricket had its influence because I found that I was playing cricket in as a spin bowler in an area of Britain that you wouldn't want to be bowling leg spin and nobody ever had, which is Wales, where the wickets are low and slow. But when I got to Johannesburg uh, with a contract from a club there, then things took off for me. And I realized that, you know, one can be a bit blinkered and not make rational decisions. If I'd gone to South Africa when I was 21, um, who knows what would would have happened. Um, When I left South Africa, I'd, I'd created a business, um, a factory, in fact, producing um, sun, sun control blinds and curtains and all that. And I'd also introduced to the country waste disposal units, which they'd never heard of. 
and which we got um, included in architects' um, plans for major flat development, etc. So it was, and it was fun. It was interesting, and at the same time, I was playing cricket. When I came back to the UK, I obviously didn't know any law, um, but a big part, a partnership offered me a partnership to come in as their corporate partner to do things for the practice that weren't on the legal front, if you like. And I did that, created a couple of travel agencies. And then I went as a lawyer on my own, employing an outstanding uh, young solicitor. Um, and the, the, the travel business is developed slightly, but not enormously. Um, and then you ask how young voices occurred, which is really quite strange, because I was sitting in my debenture seat at Cardiff Arms Park next to a Welsh South African pal of mine who now owned a hotel in Sarasota, and he turned to me and said at halftime, playing England against Wales, uh, this is disgraceful. And I said, Lawrence, we can't play rugby anymore. And he said, I'm not talking about the rugby. I'm talking about the fact that we're not singing in the Arms Park, which always intimidated the opposition and was one of the greatest treasures of playing rugby in Wales. I said, well, no, that's even worse because a lot of chapels are closed. Most of the mines are closed, so the source of male voice singing just isn't there anymore. And um, the president of the Welsh male voice said there won't be any choirs left by the end of the century. And this was in 1990, give or take a year. And he said, well, there you are. You're chairman of a charity and you're not really extending yourself. That should be what you do. And I said, wonderful, Lawrence. You're going back to sunny Sarasota and I've got to solve the problems of Welsh singing. <laughs> and we had a good laugh and a couple of drinks afterwards. But over the weekend, I thought about it quite hard. And I thought, he's right. I should at least do something. So I went to see David East, the secretary of the Welsh Rugby Union, proposed to him that for the coming French game, um, he gives me 150 standing, standing places in the Arms Park. And believe it or not, he did. And I went to a very large choir that I knew very well and told them about it and said, I want you to come and sing the anthem before the game, which is pretty standard. But then I want you to split into groups of 15, 10 of them, and sing some of the classics that we always sing, Kalonan and what have you. And they were thrilled to bits and they did it. And in the game, we lost to France by three points in an absolute thriller. But nobody spoke about the rugby afterwards. They only spoke about the singing. So I realized that, you know, something had happened and I should perhaps capitalize on it. So I wrote to seven choirs to say, look, I've got a great idea. Why don't we get together a choir of 500 or even 1,000 and sing in Cardiff Arms Park and invite people to come and listen? And um, when Tom Jones rang me five weeks later, and I thought it was die from Caffili, so I was quite rude and said, get off the line, I'm busy. <laughs> and he said, would you like me to sing Green Green Grass of Home down the phone to you, David? And I said, are you being serious? He said, I am. I am Tom Jones, and I'm ringing from L.A. because it says in the early times that you've got a choir of over 5,000. I said, no. He said, I knew it was a misprint. I said, no, no, we're up to six and a half thousand now. And he said, well, I, I've got to sing in it. I'll fly over my golf jet. No charge. I just got to be there. And I said, well, the choirs are going to go ballistic. 
And we ended up in that concert with uh, what, what EMI called 10,000 Voices. We topped the charts for Christmas. Um, it was pretty amazing. And um, that was the first world choir, the biggest choir ever of male voice singers. And then Shirley Bassey rang me the next year and said, are you going to do it again? And I said, well, I am now. <laughs> You're phoning me. And we did. And it was even bigger and even more successful. And um, that, that actually, in my life, is where the success temporarily stops, because then I got far too confident and I hired 20 jumbo jets to fly the hell choir to uh, Atlanta. And um, that was just about the biggest mistake a man can make. But I'm told that all impresarios make one mistake and that was mine. Uh, we're allowed a failure. That's the thing. It's only, it's, it's a learning curve. Someone once told me, a great friend, failure is just another form of feedback. So that's, that's fantastic. I, I, that's, that, that's funny because I've got written down here, failure is the manure for success. <laughs> well, I'm going to start using that one because I like that one better. <laughs> I look, I love that. Yeah, the uh, failure is the manure for success. That's going in a book, I'm sure. If it's not already from a book, fantastic. Well, when I came back from uh, Atlanta, really, uh, you know, we had acquired four and a half thousand voices. We had Dr. Maya Angelou of all people, the late Dr. Maya Angelou, who had done the Clinton uh, presidential address. What a lady! And you know, there were goods and the high points for it, but financially it was a complete and utter failure um, and a disaster for me. And my great friend Donald Woods, who is the subject of Cry Freedom, um, and a great mate of mine from South Africa, and he basically kicked me very hard up the backside and said, David, this is what you're meant to be doing and you've got to carry on doing it. And I said, I'll never do another concert. And he said, you damn well will. And he took me to Ireland, and we met the tourist board, Board Vulture there, and a lot of other people, and they absolutely went for the idea. But I said, but have you heard about America? And they said, we don't want to know about America. We do know, but it's irrelevant. Can you do here what you did in Wales? And I said, oh, yes, definitely. And in fact, we ended up with a choir of almost 7,000 from around 20 countries, I mean, all over the world. And they came, we sang in front of Mary Robinson, the president, and it was a very successful event. And if you like, I was back on my feet and had confidence to carry on. And, and then I did a concert for Archbishop Desmond Tutu in Cape Town. And we sang in the, to the Pope um, in St. Peter's Square. And things, you know, started to take off again, which was um, very exciting. That's fantastic. I mean, the achievements and accolades there are just, they just must surpass all of your wildest dreams when you think back to where you started and that quite opportunistic, quite altruistic yes. look at the Welsh choir scene. That That's, I mean, that's just an amazing, amazing journey from Desmond Tutu to Mayor Angelou. That is just a stunning, stunning journey. And what are the numbers now? Where, where are you at now in terms of young voices? Well, now it's in a different world completely because I started to get letters from children who said it's totally unfair. Um, we can't be in your concerts because we're under 18. And school music, when I analysed it, was dying everywhere. I mean, governments do not seem to understand that music is an absolutely wonderful part of the curriculum confidence. Um, it, it does so much for children. And over the last uh, 18 years, we've proved that time and time again. And I've got the files and files of letters from mums and dads and teachers 
it, it is such an enhancement for children, and it's their right. They should be, they're entitled to love music. And the music that we produce in Young Voices is of many different genres. So, you, you know, you've got rock and pop, you've got the Messiah, you might have Bohemian Rhapsody and the Beatles medley, you've got everything. And for teachers, that is so exciting for them to teach that to their children instead of away in a manger. I'm sorry, I'm not, don't want to be disparaging, but it's lovely that the children do their Christmas concerts for Christmas, but we are doing something much broader and wider. And, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but the government, if they thought about it for a, a minute, they would realize that actually we could produce the music book and, and information book that I have in front of me with two CDs, one with the songs all sung in studio by professionals and the other is a backing track so that once the children have learned the lyrics, they can sing the whole program, which is exactly what they're going to get in the big concert, which I'll come back to. And when they get there, they're little choirs of 30 and 40, and suddenly they're in a choir of 8,000. Now, if that isn't the most exciting moment in their lives to date, then nothing will be, and that proves itself. And now we do, well, we do five concerts on five nights in one week consecutively every year now in the O2 in London, which is 18, 19,000 seater. No, very few people do five nights in a row there. Uh, we also do Manchester, we do four. In the LG in Birmingham, which is a little bit smaller, we do five. And in Sheffield Arena, we do five. And we do four in um, City West in Ireland. Um, add to that the one charity concert, big one, we do in the Royal Albert Hall for Click Sergeant Cancer Care for Children. Um, that's a much smaller arena, really, but, but iconic, at 7,500, so we put in a choir of just under 2,000 there, and we sell every seat. So um, it's, it's a success story in a most bizarre way that it's all happened, but it's fairly simple when you think about it. If you have a choir of 8,000, you've probably got a, an audience of ten or 11,000. And in London, this next January, we already have two shows completely sold out. And the parents of the children who haven't bought tickets yet can't get any, which is an interesting situation. Wow. I mean, that success is just fantastic. And I, to be honest, I'll be picking up a, a ticket to Sheffield. I'm sorry, that's right on my doorstep. So that, that'd be superb. I'll come along and, and take a look at that. Absolutely. So, that's in January. So yes, go for it. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love that. I think it's fantastic. I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be certainly picking that up. My, my, my good wife is is a, a musical, musically inclined, shall we say. She loves it and she, she's uh, a singer. So we'll certainly be picking that up. She will, she will adore that. So that's we, We'll have tickets for you, Mark, without question. So just, just let us know and we'll sort it out. You gentlemen, thank you so much. That's fantastic. And I'll, guys, you guys listening out there, if you do want to pick up some tickets as well, or if you just want to figure out where the gigs are, I'll put those in the show notes, pop some links on there. You can check that out. So okay. David, let's just talk about picking up, I guess, on the difficulties in the early days. So I'm thinking about the people listening out there that are in business or perhaps wanting to start a business or they're wanting to expand or diversify. And actually they believe in what they're doing, but there are people out there telling them that it's too hard. You know, someone <laughs> out there will be saying, you cannot possibly put a concert on with a choir of 8,000. And actually, yes, you can. So 
Why is that so important to entrepreneurs and business people? Sticking to your guns if you've done the due diligence. What what does that do for a person, for a business? Well, absolutely. I mean, I came across a classic in Manchester where there was a Welsh um, head of music in the in the council. And uh, I thought, right, well, great, that's somebody who'll understand. And I phoned him up and told him that I'd booked the Manchester Arena. And he said, the Manchester Arena, the, the big one. I said, yeah, yeah, 18,000 seater. He said, how big is your choir likely to be? I said, well, it'll be, I would think, over 6,000, maybe even getting up to 7,000. He said, David, we want nothing to do with it. It's the craziest idea I've ever heard in my life. Um, good luck to you, but thanks for your call. Goodbye. <laughs> and, uh, and I was quite not deflated because we already had over 4,000 voices and we'd only sent the letter out about three weeks before to about, I'm going to say, 3,000 schools within 100 miles of Manchester. And they were pouring back in because music teachers and even teachers who love music but aren't officially music teachers just love the idea of showing their children a variety of genre of music. And um, ironically, three years later, Manchester City Council rang me or my son. It might have been my son, actually because Ben has become my managing director now, and spoke to us and said, um, is it possible that you would sing our anthem for the Manchester Festival? And we have a soloist, a tenor, who I don't suppose you'd be willing to put him into your concert. And we said, of course, on both fronts, we'd be delighted. And we did. Um, I didn't check up if that Welshman was still there, but if he was, he must have been smarting a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that, you know, you really, if you've got the passion, if you've got the desire, and not only that, if you truly believe that it solves a problem for someone, it solves a problem for the children, for the teachers that want the outlet to be able to deliver musical experience and expertise and enjoyment, you know, in your case, that everything came together and, you know, throughout business throughout anyone that's wanting to set something up that they really do believe in i guess as long as you're convinced that there is someone that will want to let you do that so someone that will either buy it someone that will enjoy it someone for whom it solves a problem you can achieve it can't you You can most definitely do what you believe in you can i think you've got to have confidence in yourself and you've also got to be prepared to test it because my first concert were in ireland after the big um, concert i did there and it was going to be a real test. And I got in touch with the, the Point Depot, the Point Theatre, um, which is an iconic place because they did River Dance and um, Eurovision Song Contest. You know, it's a well-known venue. And I booked it for three nights, which I, in fact, had to extend to four because the response from schools was so intense. And they were all sold out. It was a great success. And then I brought it to Britain and we did one single concert in each venue. And then when Ben joined the company, he was very anxious to expand it, but he's not a gambler. Uh, he doesn't take chances, and he was very sound in his approach at the expansion, whereas I might have been a little bit more um, random about it and just pitched in. He didn't. He, he worked it out, and, and he's consequently now expanding us into, well, our concerts for the coming year include a concert in Zagreb, one in Hamburg, um, one in Trinidad and Tobago, and one in New Jersey, 
in the States. And the one in New Jersey, um, on our prediction, will become at least 10 or 20 cities in due course, at least. And in each case that we've always done a Young Voices concert, one concert has become two, and then three, and now, as I've told you, five. So we could be, you know, we could be at the start of something pretty remarkable. And um, Ben is leading us, and my youngest son, my eldest son, he is our logistics director, and you can just imagine the complications of 8,000 children and 10,000 parents with cars, and exit is a vital factor to get it absolutely right for health and safety, because you do not want a child wandering off into the middle of a crowd of adults not knowing where they're going. So logistics are crucial. That's possibly the most difficult part, I would imagine, figuring out, you know, getting the concert on, oh, well and good, you can deal with that. But actually, logistically, you've got to deal with everything on, a, on an ad hoc basis, venue by venue, night by night, circumstance by circumstance. And that that is really interesting. The fact that you mentioned there about that pragmatism and, you know, really going at that expansion quite quite aggressively, but with a mixture and a, and a familial sort of sense as well. I love that you've got your sons involved in this. Yeah, but- I'm very lucky. And my daughter's involved on the charity side and came up with what we, I thought was a crazy idea at the time when she said to me, if you have 140,000 children, Dad, why don't they all go into their kitchen and get their parents to give them something to bring to the concert, which we can then give to the homeless people? That's amazing. I love, oh, well, I love that. That is all we need at the moment. And when I tell the boys, they said, no, Dad, that's a brilliant idea. And we now collect tons of food at every concert for the homeless. And uh, the charity Fair Share are brilliant in collecting it and distributing it. Um, and it's something that, that she handles, along with other things connected with charity. That's fantastic. I love that. That That is so so good I, I i love the idea that you're in business but yet you found an opportunity to allow people to contribute on a small almost non-consequential basis for the people that are putting in there but the impact that that has on the people that need it is absolutely massive i think that's so so and i think it also helps the children themselves that they know that they're giving something and it's a bit like our charity concert in the albert hall all of those children know that they are doing something for children with cancer and that's that's pretty important. It's amazing. I, lo- I love that. I love that. That's that's fantastic. And actually, I just want to pick up on the last sort of question before we get to the famous takeaways section, actually, which is, I just want to pick back up on that growth, you know, the kind of, the idea that you mentioned, you got, obviously the family is involved in, in the business, in Young Voices, and as you said, you would have perhaps gone at the growth quite randomly, quite opportunistically, which I think that's the shades of the entrepreneurialism coming out. That's what people do in that kind of frame of mind. But then obviously his son, he put the facts in play. He had a more pragmatic approach to that. So how important is it to to have that mix of people that allow you to strike the balance between opportunity and measured growth? How important is that to a business? It's absolutely critical. And I mean, Ben has brought another young guy into the business, um, Dan, who is our operations director. And he is... Mr. Detail. He drives me mad sometimes, as he knows, but he wants to tick boxes and make sure that everything is spot on, especially when it comes to timing. You know, we have 
challenges at certain times of the year. And we want to know where were we last year and where are we this year in terms of registrations of choirs, ticket sales. Um, we produce DVDs. Obviously, we film. We've got six camera units filming all the children. And every single child has to be on the DVD. Otherwise, why would the parent buy the DVD? And the other crucial factor that I haven't mentioned is that when you think about it, if there's 8,000 in the choir and there's 10,000 in the audience, if you're on the left-hand side of the audience and your child is in a choir on the left-hand side of the choir, you're not going to see them. And that's why you're there. So we have a very technical approach that once we know where we've placed your choir, then we know where we have to place the audience. And that's, I mean, you know, we, we feel pretty confident that nobody can copy what we do. But it's little secrets like that, that if you get it wrong, you're going to have an awful lot of grumpy parents. And that's the last thing you want, because their children are on a massive high. They should be on that high with them. Absolutely. I mean, and they're things that you don't find out until later as well. Those little details that make such a difference. So I, I love that you're sort of continually learning on that basis. And speaking of learning, that's what it's all about. Excellence Expected is about actionable takeaways and allowing people to kind of overcome their own barriers within their own businesses. So let's just dig in to the now famous Excellence Expected actionable takeaways. Now, David, I know you spent some time putting together three actionable tips to help people overcome the odds and make their dream, their passion into a success, just like you've done with Young Voices. So what have you got for the guys listening, sir? Well, in the first place, I think you've got to have a good idea. Now, that can be, you know, not everybody. One of the things that distresses me is that children are forced into one particular channel of education or their professor, or you know, guides them into one career. It shouldn't be like that. You should be more open. There are those that have to go that route, and that's grand. But there are an awful lot who are much broader in their approach, and they should be looking for a good idea. And if they find that good idea, then they've got to go for it with all the passion they've got. Test it. This is part two of it, I suppose. Test it and refine it so that it's really rock solid and then expand it. And that's those three steps are the steps that have put us where we are today and um, make us pretty happy. I love that, yeah. So take the idea and, and, as you say, refine it, test it, measure it, and then go through the process again, don't you? You're never, you're never quite finished, are you, in that instance? No, absolutely not. And you, you discover new things all the time. And, I mean, you know, America at the moment, you know, we're so delighted that the children are pouring into that choir in New Jersey in the IZOD arena and it's the same size as the O2 and I have no doubt that within three or four years we'll be doing three or four concerts in the IZOD every year along with all the other venues. Yeah, I love that and it's, it is just a case of test, measure, refine and continue growing upon that. Now David is that is that three tips rolled into one or do you have more for the listeners out there? I think, I think it is um, one, two, three, good business idea, test and refine and expand it. I don't, I, you know, I think I mentioned to you before that I've been forced into a situation by my children to actually write my autobiography. And <clears throat> when I tell you the title, you'll understand that this is not, um, my, my ideas are not that specific. 
And the title of the book is More Luck Than Judgment. And I think that accurately portrays uh, my life. I mean, I have just been so unbelievably lucky meeting amazing people like Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu, Muhammad Ali, um, Dr. Maya Angelou, of course, and all the musicians. Um, I mean, just it is quite ridiculous when you think of Sir Cliff and Christopher, Gary Barlow, Tom Jones, um, just Beverly Knight, Catherine Jenkins, Desiree, Benny King, who I flew wow. to Cape Town because Archbishop said his favorite song was um, Stand By Me. And I said, oh, Benny King. He said, you know Benny King? I said, no, I don't know Benny King. But when I got back to the hotel, you know, I looked him up in my white book and rang his manager, and there was never any doubt Benny King was coming to Cape Town to wow. sing to the Archbishop. And um, things like that, which are definitely more luck than judgment. I tell you what, David, if you, if you in your New Jersey concerts, I was dragged up on 80s rock. If you end up singing with anyone from the band Bon Jovi in New Jersey, I will buy the plane ticket and I will be there. <laughs> um, I think... Don't uh, say it. I think, now this is not my strength, but I think, wasn't it Bon Jovi who did Living on a Prayer? Oh, uh, you're blowing my mind. Yeah? Yeah. Well, if you go on our website, www.youngvoices, from last year, you will see a young Irish singer who joined us 10 years ago, and we have him back every two or three years. And the first task I gave him when he came back was to sing Bohemian Rhapsody. And he absolutely nailed it with choirs of 8,000. Wow. And Bohemian Rhapsody was never sung, I believe it was never sung live. It was always a studio piece. Mm. And last year we did Living on a Prayer. And in the IZOD in New Jersey, we are doing Living on a Prayer. So you, you better be there. I will have to be there. I'll have to be there. The, the, the New Jersey natives of Bon Jovi. Yeah, I, was, I blame my parents for dragging me up on Bon Jovi. So if anyone listening out there, please don't judge me on my 80s rock preference. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. David, just to recap those little tips for the guys out there, they're really good, solid, actionable tips. So if you're thinking, look, I've got a new business idea. I'm wanting to make the jump. Or look, I've got an idea and I have a business and I just want to diversify or add a new stream of revenue in there. The key thing is, Number one, have the idea, have a good idea, and make sure that you believe in that idea. Number two, test and refine. Do not forget to measure. And number three is basically rinse and repeat. Don't stop. Keep that perpetual motion. Keep that inertia continually moving forward. You need to be testing, rinse and repeat, testing, measure, rinse and repeat, and just keep doing that. And that's that's the basis of a high-quality business, isn't it? That's fantastic. So, David, thank you, sir. If you wouldn't mind, would you be able to tell the guys listening out there where they can find yourself online? Well, we're www.youngvoices.co.uk, Young Voices, all one word. And um, there's an awful lot there, so I think. And a lot of it is for teachers and children and parents. But a lot of it, I think, will be interesting for, um, you know, for the general public. And for you guys listening out there, don't forget, it is always my pleasure to do this for you. And so, again, thank you so much for pressing that play button and spending this time with me. Now, as ever, the show notes will be available at excellence-expected.com. And whilst you're over there, don't forget you can pick up your free copy of the essential 14-day guide to cutting your working hours and increasing your impact. And as ever... 
Don't forget, the more you expect from yourself, the more you will excel. Bye-bye.